1: Welcome to New Books in Fantasy, a podcast channel on a New Books Network. This is your host, Gabrielle Matthew. Today, we'll be talking to Matt Bell, author and faculty member in the Creative Writing Program at Arizona State University. Bell's new novel, Appleseed, is a literary speculative novel with fantasy elements, It's told in three alternating narratives. My review follows. We have a collective memory of a primeval world embodied in myth. It is a world where spirits moved through the power of trees, water, and mountains. Was such a world ever possible, or was it doomed as soon as humans spread? What went wrong with our planet, and whose fault is it? Are innovators who look to science for answers agents of positive change or merely heedless apologists for human greed? These are only some of the many questions that Bell's new novel provokes. No doubt a few literature students will be inspired to write long papers about it. Bell's ambitious and original triptych of interlocking stories explores man's relationship with the wilderness through three timelines set in the past, the near future, and the far future, after a cataclysmic catastrophe. A snowpiercer has nothing on his chilly future world, bereft of any life. Such a novel is a challenge to reduce to synopsis, but I'll try. In one time period, the late 1800s, a fawn Chapman suppresses his identity out of love for his human brother, as well as fear of the furies who chase him, carrying Orpheus's howling head. Chapman might be, in some magical manner, responsible for Eurydice's death. Though the Greek myth of Orpheus and his wife does not involve Chapman directly, but rather an unnamed shadowy shepherd who in some accounts was a fawn. Chapman's fear of the women who pursue him leads him to renounce the wild. The second segment of the novel follows John Worth. A scientist who regrets his part in building a corporate empire that supplies a climate change battered world with genetically modified foods in return for absolute power. John, urged on by three wild women, former soldiers, returns to the company he helped found to plot against the CEO, Yuri, which is short for Eurydice. In the third part of the novel, something apparently has gone wrong, either with Yuri's plan to delay the disastrous effects of climate change through launching a swarm of nanobees into the stratosphere, or with John's intention to subvert her. The world is a frozen wasteland, apparently populated only by a cyborg creature that seems modeled after the fawn we first met planting apple seeds. So let's welcome Matt to the show now. Hi, Matt, and welcome. Hi, how are you? I'm good. (laughs) How are you doing?
0: I'm doing great. So nice to talk to you. Thank you for having me.
1: Oh, you're quite welcome. And thanks for giving me such interesting work to chew over, I think to prepare our readers uh, the underpinning the myth itself of Orpheus. And how does one say that? I only read it. Eurydice.
0: Yeah, I would say Eurydice, that's how I Eurydice? would say it. Anyway, Eurydice is probably okay. not quite Greek enough, but yeah, that's the way I would say it. <laughs> it's yes. not
1: something that comes up in conversation a lot. Anyway, the myth yeah, yeah. about the singer and his wife and how he went to the underworld is an essential underpinning to understanding your work. So I would like to invite you to tell us about the myth in your own words.
0: Sure um i can at least tell you about some of the parts of it that i think are are most interesting to me because I, I you know there's so many different sort of versions of it mm-hmm. um i will say before i start that one of the the versions of it that um, has stuck with me for a long time is is neil gaiman's retelling of it in his sandman comics um which i i did not i purposely didn't go back and reread while i was writing this but uh, something i loved a lot when i was younger that i know had just sort of stuck around um there's a the fawn or saturn his version of that is one of my favorite sort of fawns, which I think is sort of, as I started writing about this fawnish version of the American folklore of Johnny Appleseed, I started thinking about that Orpheus and Eurydice retelling, which is how I got there.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, which is all to say, um, you know, the 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 part of the myth that I'm most interested in is at um, Orpheus, who is a, a sort of beautiful singer, and Eurydice, who um, in different versions is a, is a nymph, um sort, sort of related to nature spirits. Um at their wedding, uh the spawn tries to um different versions uh seduce or rape Eurydice, um which causes her to flee. Um and she falls into a uh uh pit of snakes or is bitten by a snake and dies and then goes to the underworld um where Orpheus eventually follows her to try to see his wife um gets Hades to- as long as he doesn't look back while they're walking out of the underworld. And of course, at like the edge of the underworld, he turns around and looks back and she goes back into Hades. Um, And then uh, in some versions of the myth, he is later killed by being uh, torn apart by beasts or by wild women who follow Dionysus or witches or the Furies, sort of just depending on the telling. Um, But his sort of endless grief is obviously part of the book, but this is a way that, uh, headless version of him that appears um, sort of sings this droning sort of elegy. Um, yeah, and you know, there's so many other parts of it that could be part of it. I think those are the things that were like the parts I was playing with, so the parts I was moving through the book in different ways.
1: Okay, well that was a pretty good summation. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Let me start off with the questions. You teach a creative writing program, right, in Phoenix? Yes, it is, yes. And you've chosen to create an ambitious literary work. You've embodied the archetypical figures we were just talking about Orpheus, You're to see and the fawn, as well as the apple tree, so a little touch of Eden there, in sets of characters who live through different periods. In using these archetypical repeating motifs, It seemed to me you had foregone the personal identification that we might have that would bond us to one specific narrator. And you've kind of switched over to a more philosophical distanced exploration of man and ecology. And that gave me the impression, I'm sure you're very versatile since you have studied the craft. but. It seems to me you're more fascinated by the structure of the novel. Like, how can I talk about all these different ideas in one story than you are by actually digging deep into the character? Uh, would you agree with that? Uh,
0: maybe to some extent, right? I mean, I, I do think I'm, I'm interested in these people as as people as well. Um, but I will say that I think... Uh, I remember my, my editor and I talking the first time we talked about the book, and she was like... Uh, she's like, I don't know how much, like, romance there is in these people. And I was like, well, I think they're all kind of romantic, but they're is they're, they're toward, like, the non-human world, or toward nature, or toward animals. They have personal relationships, right? Like, Nathaniel oh, yeah. and Chapman, their brotherhood is really important. And, uh, and C and the Tree end up have I think, are, are a relationship. Um, John Quite. has, has <laughs> his romantic relationship with Yuri and Cal. But they're not, at, a lot of those relationships aren't, like, the active point of the book, right? Like, Yuri and Cal's uh romantic relationships with genre in the past right um and it's really john's like sort of grief for the sort of dying natural world that is his animating like personal relationship mm-hmm. um but you know but of course like every book can only do so many things and in a book that's already almost 500 pages long there may also like be limited space for like uh hundreds of pages of complex psychological backstory. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. So you're hoping to sketch that stuff usefully, right? And sort of have enough of it um, that people seem real and their motivations seem real, um, but without really, yeah, the kind of space that a, a different kind of novel might give to um, a longer emotional sort of time span for each character.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You packed quite a lot into the novel as as it yeah. was, I don't think there was much room for interiority in addition to all the wild technological and mythological elements. So another observation I had was that you seem to like triptychs. I hope I'm saying mm, that right. Mm-hmm. So we've got three different time periods. We've got three different main characters. And we've got three Avenging Furies, Wild Women which is whatsoever, they keep showing up in different guises. Do you feel like working with repeating patterns creates a better structure for the many themes, like kind of a lattice work for all these themes to be contained?
0: Uh, Yeah, I think you're right. I I do like uh, patterns and repetition and sort of um, progressions of things. Uh, One of the, the goals I think for me is often to like try to get as much out of something rather than introduce something new, something that's already in the book. Um, Lucy Corin talks about uh, one of the ways you discover your material is by looking at the material you've already made. Um, and so i have to kind of go back to go forward. Uh, and so I think it's pleasing in some ways as a reader to like un- understand that something's in conversation with something else or that an action is like another action. Um, and that can be a lot of fun. Uh, but I also think it makes the book, Cohesive and probably save space. Again, I always keep saying, like, wow, it's such a long book. But um, if you didn't reuse anything, the book might have to be a thousand pages, right? Like, you'd sort of, you wouldn't get some of those connections. You'd have to make them in other ways. Um, And so, yeah, I think repeating patterns does do interesting things. Um, Maybe the last thing I'll say before I move on from it is I think one of the things that's really important to me in this book is that the three stories are are all part of one story like that, not only in like a physical way in the book, but that the things that are happening in 1800 in the book have something to do with the things that are happening in our presence and in the future. Mm-hmm. And so by, by bringing some of that material along, it creates that, that sense of wholeness, ideally.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, it almost reminded me of some modern artists or not, not contemporary, but like Matisse, Setting, mm-hmm. The different dancers, and each one, or the different figures. There are three women, but each one is turned a little bit differently, or something. So it was pleasing to me to the likeness, but mm. the difference as well.
0: Yeah, I love that comparison. I think that that seems right. Um, I'm really attracted to artists who paint the same thing over and over. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an artist whose name's going to escape me, who like makes the painting of like uh, like the date every day. And oh. like, you get it done, then that's the painting. If you don't get it done, he destroys it and he tries again the next day. And he's been doing it for like decades. Right. Huh. Um, I find that incredibly attractive. I don't know what it'd be like to do that, but I find something about the, like, I'll, I'll, do the same thing over and over and they are different. Right. Like the paintings aren't the same. Um, I don't know. It's very pleasing to me. Uh, I don't know that i would make a great novel, but
1: <laughs>
0: <It's-> <laughs> uh, sort of a pleasing practice.
1: It's probably kind of soothing, because I imagine with someone who has a mind that active, that there is a need to seek out something soothing once in a while.
0: Yeah, and just even know what you're doing every day. Like, it seems great, you know.
1: (laughs) That's true. Well, you're a literary novelist. Uh, Maybe a bit like Jonathan Leffen, he likes to play with genre. You have done so as well, but how do you feel about just straight up, Classic genre writing. How do you talk to your students about that?
0: Sure. I mean, I think I I love all kinds of writing, and i I you know I in some ways don't. I mean, I don't think of myself as like a literary fiction reader in that way, if that makes sense. Um, in mm. some ways, I'm a literary fiction novelist because that's published my books, which is different than saying that's what I do. um I you know I think when I was writing this book, I very much thought of it as a as a science fiction novel and as a as a fantasy novel or as a myth. Um, so some of those tags are just marketing to me as, as far as they relate to myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think one of my, my goals generally is to use everything that I like when I'm writing. I like a lot of different kinds of books. And also in like kind of a big like career kind of way to like write a book in like every genre that I love. Um, and so I, I feel very genre ag- agnostic maybe. Um, I've certainly not like this is good and this is bad or this genre does this well and this genre can't do this. Um, it just, it breaks down so quickly when you start comparing things. Um, that's what I do know, obviously that there are like genre expectations of every genre. And I, I actually find those really attractive. Like, um, uh, in John's part of the plot, it took me a long time to figure out how the plot was built. And at some point I was like, oh, this is a heist. They're going to infiltrate this place and they're going to do something that's a heist. And as soon as I knew it was a heist, I knew how to build the structure, right? It's like I knew I would have to have the scene where they plan the heist. And they're like, picture everything going well. And then we, of course, know it's not going to go well, right? And, like, that was so much fun to write. And if I wasn't uh, attracted to the heist as a genre, I would not have been able to write that. Um, and so I think sort of knowing what those expectations are and and using them well and, and both adhering to them and subverting them seems like a lot of the fun of writing Um I don't know if I really believe that I think most literary fiction novels have some kind of genre underpinning them, even if it's like a retelling of Shakespeare or something. I think that's kind of true of a lot of science fiction, right? It's a science fiction heist or it's a science fiction crime story. Mm-hmm. It's a science fiction, you know, like there's, I'm not sure there's something that's like science fiction, right? Um, not anymore. <laughs> all these other genres. No, right. Yeah. That's <laughs> really exciting to me. I feel like that's fun. Yeah.
1: They're like, twenty subdivisions for each genre. <laughs> and then and then you never fit neatly into one subdivision. So you're kind of no, right. Each time you're pitching the novel, you look at the agent and you're like, Okay, so they represented that. Uh-huh. So I think I'll make it that genre right now or that subgenre.
0: Absolutely.
1: <laughs> well
0: uh, one of the, the stories I told a lot from pitching the book, mm-hmm. was I had a, an editor who was like, this isn't like your literary stuff at all. This is a science fiction novel. And I was like, great. And the next person was like, this is a literary novel. This isn't science fiction at all. And I was like, great. Like, it doesn't matter to me, right? <laughs> Just like, what, whatever makes you, like, enjoy the book. Yeah,
1: call it. it what you like. Just find yep. me a contract. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> well, on to the characters. We have the fawn. He has his three guises. First of all, he's Chapman the brother of a human. And then it took me a while to figure out John Worth was also a fawnish figure, but it helped that he was called Old Goat. So I was like, Mm -hmm. oh, okay, I get it. (laughs) (laughs) And then the last one is Poor Old C, the patched together remnant of organic material who is created by a machine called the loom. Chapman's an affable fawn, I thought, who wishes to be human. He's pursued by the Furies for a crime he may or may not have committed. The origin story of the fawn, which is alluded to but not part of your narrative, is uh, what you mentioned before. He attended the wedding, attempted to rape the bride, a nymph he knew since, he, since she was a child. And... I thought there might be a progression of the Fawn's role here. Like he starts off with being a perceived wild beast, and then we get to uh, John Worth, and then we kind of get to the savior of the world. Is that right? That each appearance is changing uh, more from wild man to heroic figure? How would you describe it? There are least
0: I don't know if they're like a straight progression. I think they're, there's some shared characteristics of, there's maybe like different manifestations of the same character, same character sets that do different things in different times. Um, one of the things I, I thought a lot was that the three worlds are in some ways like the last, I mean, in some of this is really obvious. There's just less things alive in the last storyline, right? <laughs> there's like a diminishment of the world that these three characters are going through. Um, I think in each, each version of them is somebody who is a, wants to be like a caretaker for the world, wants to make the world better as they understand it in their time and place. You know, Chapman has this opportunity to care for like a, a wild world, a world that not very changed by man. John has a, a world that's dramatically changed by man. And in, in C's world, he really finds, you know, the, the tree he cares for is like the the one other living thing for most of his storyline. Mm-hmm. Um and so his his role is very direct in some way. Like, this tree is, like, a, the world as opposed to, like, the wild, sort of inexhaustible world of Chapman's time. Um, so I think there's less than that progression. There's sort of, like, similar characteristics playing out in different ways. Um, but, you know, they're they're interesting, too, because I think, like, it took me a long time to understand what John, to me, wants to be told is, like, um, he wants to know what the right thing to do is. And if he someone tells him what it is, he'll do it. Like, he'll do whatever it takes, but he doesn't know what to do. And I think a lot of people feel that way. Um, C doesn't have that same hesitancy, really, right? Like, once he decides (laughs) there's this thing to do, he does it. Um, And so it's, you know, there's interesting things that, uh, but in some ways, there's less choices for C. He either saves the tree or he doesn't, right? Like, it's sort of like the what should you do is a little starker. Exactly um, because it, it, was, it was yeah right.
1: <laughs> it's so diminished. He, it, it's pretty right. clear. Like this is this is all you can do. You can save the tree or not. Yeah,
0: and in Chapman's time, he like some of these questions aren't even questions that could occur to someone in 1799. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a thing I I learned really early on in the book was you know people in in America at that time, uh, like famously Thomas Jefferson did not believe in extinction. He was a naturalist. He cared about the natural world. He uh, was obsessed with finding, like, the woolly mammoth in America because he'd seen fossils. He just couldn't believe that they didn't, no longer existed. Um, so they, Chabon and Nathaniel can't see at the beginning of the book any damage they're doing. It's just it's it would be impossible for them to conceive of it in our way. Um, and so in some ways his version of, like, do what's best in the world or do what's best for people or do what's best for nature is, is a different question than it is in the other timelines. Um, so taking those similar wants, And then just putting them in different contexts seemed part of that progression.
1: Right, because at first there was so much abundance that it wouldn't occur to anyone. Oh, uh, we might run out of this stuff. Another thing I noticed, I don't know, perhaps this has to do with the diminishment as well. But the fawn Chapman, right, he has his brother, even though that brother is flawed in some ways. He's drinking an awful lot of apple cider towards the end. Yeah. <laughs> and then John Worth has Cal, but that that's not really great. As you said, you're not focusing on romantic part. You know, she calls him old goat, throws him down on the ground and yeah. has sex with him. It's not really uh, a, a very intimate scene. And then poor C really doesn't have anyone except uh, the memories that uh are still alive in him and he has the moaning of oh so uh each progressive creature or man is is getting lonelier too is that part of the diminishment
0: yeah probably uh i you know i i think um and some of that's that the the world is lonelier in these Mm -hmm. places i really feel Mm -hmm. like the the they're just emptier worlds because of the diminishment of the natural right um and uh you know our only companionship in life does not have to be humans right and not just pets right like there's a world around us as part of the companionship we we have and could have um and so i think there is a a sort of direness to that as things go down um and you know i i i hope that in each of those areas even if that's more true there's still like a want for like connection between characters right like john is lonely at the beginning of the book and Mm -hmm. by himself and sees the The tree is killing see, but he's very glad it's there you know um and uh and is willing to sort of let it live rather than him you know at some points of the book um so i think there yeah i think there is like maybe a a there's less there's less things to connect with as the book goes mm-hmm. on, which is a makes the loneliness more dire in a certain way um Chapman has the purest choice maybe between the natural and the the human like he could He could be happy in either place. And that's not an option other characters have because there's not that same natural world left.
1: That's true. So Yuri Dessy, she makes more of an appearance in the second story where she's Yuri, the head of Earth Trust. Actually, now that I'm reading that, Yuri almost sounds like Soviet era. But she's Yuri E-U-R-Y. Mm-hmm. So she's the head of Earth Trust, who almost literally takes over the world, disenfranchising its citizens while trying to arrange for a long-term solution to the looming catastrophe. At one point, Yuri speaks affectionately of the origin of her name. She envisions herself as a better version of the original Yuri Deceit. She says, the one who escapes, the one who saves herself, the one who is enough to save everyone else is yuri really the villain here
0: um i think no yuri is the antagonist right different than than being a villain yeah good uh, point yeah i think um it's really important to me that uh so yuri to me seems like an embodiment of like a like a techno utopian Mm -hmm. solution to climate change right like she's in some ways what we get from like the dominant culture of of climate change this is uh if Jeff Bezos or, or Elon Musk got to like fix climate change or something, right? right? As it tells they're going to, um, (laughs) uh, and so I think she sees herself as like a person who can, who can save everybody else. And she's trying, right. She sees the problem with the world and she does this dramatic thing to try to fix it. Um, so that's not a villain, right. A person who wants to fix climate change is better than a person who doesn't want to, Mm -hmm. um, or denies that it exists. Uh, but she doesn't want to fix it in the way that I would want it to be fixed or the way that John and his friends want it fixed. Um, cause so she's an antagonist. Right. Uh, but I think one of the, I mean, I'm so attracted to that part that you read where she talks about like the story she's telling herself about who she is. Right. That mm-hmm. She was given this name and there's this myth attached to it and she can see herself as the person who escapes the story. Right. Um, doesn't get the fate of the person she's named after. Um, and I I just find that so attractive, right? It's just like you could see someone who told you that. You'd just be like, well, I'll follow this person anywhere, you know? Um And I I think that uh much of what she says in her arguments are, is very, like, plausible and reasonable. And it's one of the reasons she's so convincing to John. Is like she's charismatic, and she says the things that our culture seems to believe. So she doesn't seem wrong a lot of the time, except in this, like, macro way, you know? Yeah. Um, and uh so that makes her an interesting character for me i i I think keeping Yuri from seeming ever to be like mustache twirling kind of villain <laughs> was really important to me like she She does have like a big techno thing she's doing to the world and like a you know kind of implausible technological complex, but she's not like a bond villain right No, um, no yeah
1: and she seems to care about john um uh, i I was Absolutely. a little yeah. I was a little puzzled why she trusts him so much. Is it just because she really needs his scientific expertise?
0: I think in my mind, I always thought, feel like she's trying to convince him. She wants him to tell mm-hmm. her she's right too. She's like the person, you know, like there's one person that she needs to go along with her, and it's important that's him.
1: Yeah, um, because that's their childhood—that's
0: my take on it, anyway. Right?
1: Their yeah. childhood. She's friends. too, like, right? Yeah. That's true. She is lonely, she, and, and she wants to show off all this stuff to someone, and he's known her longer uh-huh. than anyone else. Yeah. So, yeah, I
0: don't know that he's super necessary. I think she <laughs> wants, yeah, I think she's necessary emotionally to her, to Yuri. Yeah, because
1: yeah, she seems like she can figure everything out.
0: Right, <laughs> she's pretty good.
1: <laughs> Perhaps she's tasted the apple of knowledge, <laughs> because the apple is also present in all those different timelines. The first saga, I would say, contains the apple as a manifestation of many different diverse seeds and the apples, that fruit from the trees that Chapman and his brother plant might be sour or crisp or mealy and insipid. They are not a source of wealth, nor do they deliver the desired gift to Chapman. And then we have the apples that earth Irvtress grows the genetically modified ones, they're clones, and they appear physically perfect, but they don't really have a real taste. And then in the third timeline, we've got C, who's basically letting the apple tree feed off him. So can you uh, tell us a little more about the symbolism of the apple and those different manifestations?
0: Yeah, I, I probably shouldn't I'll explain it too directly, but I, I can right. talk a little bit about <laughs> yeah. how I'm. Thinking, yeah, yeah, you know, like you want to leave some of that stuff for the reader to do. Or to um, I, <laughs> I do think. Yeah, sure. Yeah, um, but I do think um, it's another one of these things. Sort of like it, it has a a, a durability. You can move it through different parts of the story and have it mean different things. Um, I think it uh, it obviously has things like you know the garden, the apple in the garden of Eden, the tree of knowledge, and and, and lots of other mythology so it has this sort of long history in uh in western culture it's you know one of the first domesticated fruits so you know we sort of Mm -hmm. have like a long history with it as people um and then I also think they're like one of those things that we uh you know a lot of us eat apples all the time don't think too much about where they come from or what they are or um what they are compared to what they used to be uh, and, you know, I think the apples we have in our house right now are Honeycrisp apples, which are invented at a university mm. in the U.S., right? Mm-hmm. Um, they're, you know, they're, they're good, but they're like, they're still like, uh, a product, right? Um, and I think that's interesting to me, but really in some ways, like once I, I started from the, the folktale of Johnny Appleseed it was the place I started with the book. And so apples sort of always had to be part of it. And it's again, that yeah. sort of like moving your material through time, like, Chapman could have, or John could have genetically engineered anything, but, um, but apples are, are one of the things he does because it's one of the things that Chapman grew right? So there's sort of the, the logic of it is um, parallelism as much as it is symbolism.
1: And I think you mentioned in the end notes too uh, something about Michael Pollan. You'd been reading his book. I think. Yeah,
0: Michael Pollan's Botany of Desire has the mm-hmm, retelling right. of the domestication of the apple in it. That was like um, the, the thing that sort of kicked off the book. I keep trying to not say the seed of the book, you know, but was the <laughs> thing that was the seed of the book. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I really loved, you know, like American folklore when I was growing up and really uh, liked Johnny Appleseed. And so it just sort of fired that, that sort of part of my brain that likes retelling myths and the rest of this sort of emerged from that. Um, but, yeah, so it was always going to be the apple um, in some ways. It wasn't that wasn't that same hunch for the perfect symbol you might have to do in another project.
1: The head of Orpheus, quite a disturbing yeah. appearance. <laughs> <laughs> Still not sure what the figure was in a tank, but uh, <laughs> the figure that Yuri comes, looks at, and the figure mm-hmm, swims up. Mm-hmm. I guess that's one of those mysterious things. But Orpheus Mm -hmm. is mostly wailing and driving (laughs) listeners mad. So I had some working theories about what Orpheus could be. He could be the media. He could be your novel itself, working as a warning. Or uh, what about the Greek chorus? Could he be like a Greek chorus? I had to look at the definition again. And I remembered the chorus was kind of a continuing moral commentary to the proceedings, or is he something completely different?
0: Well, I like all of those answers okay
1: um, <laughs> all <laughs> of think, the above
0: uh yeah right that's the 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 ambigu and amb- the part of me that loves ambiguity who always wanted to just answer yes to those choices but um you know i I think the the simplest thing that comes out of the sort of original myth for me is like after after Eurydice dies he's uh He's driven sort of mad with grief, right? And mm-hmm. he's going around seeing this song that's just like so grieving that the world can't stand it. Like a part of his being torn apart is that he won't stop grieving for what he's lost.
1: Oh um, yeah, And yeah. so I
0: think that's you know I think that's the place I start from. I I think it does function in different ways. There's a, a life giving aspect to it, possibly in the novel. So it's an interesting like gr- it doesn't have to mean all grief doesn't have to mean all loss or something maybe. Um, But I I do think it began for me as like this inconsolability, Mm -hmm. like just like an inability to stop grieving for what is being lost.
1: And uh, that brings us to the gods of the small places, the small places that are being lost. Um, How could locality and a sense of place prepare us to combat worldwide disaster should Shouldn't we be thinking globally?
0: I would, we probably should do both, right? Right. <laughs> obviously, you have to think about the planet as a as a whole. Um, one of the things that's really um, I don't know if I thought about before I started writing this book. It's one of the reasons the book starts in John's part in the national parks in the U.S. is um, uh, those places that the places where we set aside as like preserves, including some of those parks where people don't really go, are still going to be affected by climate change, right? Mm-hmm. They're not going to. Yep. They're, they're not untouched. They're not preserved um and so like there is this sort of globalness to climate change that is is very daunting to think about um but at the same time what is really lost is like a, an almost innumerable number of of lo- local places and small places and and plants that live in those places and the way the uh weather is in that place which which is already changing right you know it's sort of there's there's a sense in which like every small locality is sort of uh imperiled um, but I think like we, it's hard to love the world as a whole. It is important to love and feel wonder toward and protectiveness toward like the small places around you and mm-hmm. like that. So like the reason to do the global thinking is because you love the small, um, which is the the scale at which you experience our lives, right? Um, so I think it's it's both. Uh, there obviously are things that have to be done in sort of huge, global, interconnected, political ways that are very complicated and very hard to think about in certain ways, um, which is not to say, like, what we need to do is not mostly known. Um, but I think the thing that propels you or, like, gives you sort of energy for that fight or, or that reminds you of what's worth it can be as simple as, like, the animals that live in your backyard. You know, it doesn't have to be um, – the scale of environmental incentives is like save the polar bears or save the whales. Mm-hmm. Like We should do that stuff, too. But like your daily interaction with the world is the thing that will make you want to do those things.
1: Well, actually, I agree. I was playing the devil's advocate with the global I thinking. <laughs> <laughs> I live in Switzerland. And so uh, obviously I haven't lived here all my life. I have an American accent, but it's very much a local community driven kind of situation where people are aware as a whole of global things that are going on, but people continue the traditions that they feel serve the places where they live. Mm -hmm. I mean, people still take the cows up on the Alps and then they milk the cows all summer long and they make the cheese up at the Alps and all, all this kind of cool stuff. And I think that's important mm-hmm. to a lot of people who live here, and a strong motivator. So, um, what are you working on these days, Matt?
0: Uh, I'm working on a new novel, so maybe a year, a year and a half into mm-hmm. that. Um, and then I'm also writing, uh, finishing now. It's coming out in March. But I have a, a book on novel writing and novel revision called uh, "Refuse to Be Done." That's coming out in March. So I'm uh, this month finishing last final edits on that um but yeah always working on another novel slowly bringing something else together um yeah it's fun you know i think (laughs) uh maybe something else also large and ambitious and uh potentially prone to failure so we'll see
1: And what's the best way for people to keep up with you? What social media channels sure, do you like I'm to use? I'm on
0: uh, uh, Twitter, is m- mdbell79. I have a website at mattbell.com. Those are probably the easiest places.
1: Okay, well, thanks so much for making time for us today.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Thanks for listening to me today on A New Books Network in Fantasy. I've been talking to Matt Bell about a speculative literary novel, Appleseed. In September, I've got Becky Chambers scheduled to discuss the galaxy in the ground within. It's a space opera. I'm your host, Gabrielle Matthew. You can also follow me on Twitter to get updates about new podcasts and more. At Gabrielle Author, G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E Author. Thanks for tuning in.